This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I should probably add one thing to uh, to the introduction. Um, you notice that I that uh, I was received in the Catholic Church in 2010. I was a Lutheran until that point. Uh, I did ecumenical dialogue. So some of what I'm talking about tonight will come out of sort of working on these questions ecumenically as a Lutheran dealing with Catholics, as a Catholic dealing with Lutherans. I do think I am the only person in the modern ecumenical movement who has ever served on both sides of the same dialogue at different times, uh, having been a Lutheran on the American Lutheran-Catholic dialogue, and then later representing the Catholic Church in the same dialogue, which is a little odd. I know of only one other person like that. The first Lutheran-Anglican dialogue, Lutheran-Anglican dialogue, was a meeting between representatives of Henry VIII and the city of Hamburg in the early 1530s um, over questions of Hamburg supporting Henry in the Civil War that, naming, that might name him King of Denmark in addition to England. There was a guy, Robert Barnes, who was sent by, Edward, by Henry and told to be on whichever side is shorthanded. Uh, he was English, but he was a strong Lutheran. Five years later, Henry had him burned at the stake, which shows the dangers of sort of sometimes moving on the border between traditions. Okay, I've been asked to talk about, are we saved by faith or by works? Now, this is a traditional question, uh, often seen as a central Protestant question, a question between Protestants and Catholics. But it is also a question that is central to the New Testament. In fact, I'm gonna argue this way of putting the question are we saved by faith or by works, doesn't get at the Reformation issue very well. Um, but we're stuck with it because it is a New Testament way of putting a rather different issue in Paul's letter to the Romans and in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So I think this way of putting it is somewhat inescapable. Now, I'm going to do three things. First, I'm going to start out like a boring professor, and I'm going to talk about the meanings of the words, faith and works, because part of the problem in many discussions is that the terms are not being used in the same sense. Then I'm gonna spend a bit of time talking about the context in which people have argued over faith and works. Paul's argument in those letters I mentioned, Romans and Galatians, the fifth century argument between Augustine, St. Augustine and Pelagius over grace and faith in the Christian life, and then the argument in the 16th century in the Reformation between the Catholic Church, what become the Catholic Church, those who are faithful to the Christian tradition up to that point, and particularly Martin Luther. I'm afraid I have this certain, you have a certain arrogance as a Lutheran. You're the ones who started the Reformation. You're the real Protestants. You tend to ignore all those other guys. Um, and I still have that attitude as a Catholic. Well, the Lutherans, they're the real Protestants. I mean, they're the, uh, the ones one has to think about. I tend to know Martin Luther. I'll be reflecting Martin Luther. I want to talk a bit about those three contexts because if you're gonna ask, well, what's at stake between faith and works? Well, it sort of depends on what you're arguing about. And the issue becomes rather different, the fifth century, the 16th century. I'm gonna spend then some time laying out the Catholic answer to the question, what's the relation of faith and works and salvation? Based primarily on St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm not a strict Thomist. I have to always, well, yeah, I do Thomistic Institute things. Although you really should read Duns Scotus sometime. You don't just read Thomas, there are other guys. Um, but Thomas Aquinas and the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which met for about 20 years, 1546 to 1563, was the meeting council of the church called to respond to the Reformation. And in 1547, 
They adopted a text on the joint uh, uh, on the decree on justification. I put it there on the handout, which is the Catholic doctrinal statement on the question. If you want to see what the Catholic Church officially teaches on justification, there it is. It's in that text, not the lightest reading in the world. Uh, although they did, in fact, try and avoid technical terms and use biblical terms as much as possible. Nevertheless, at some points it gets technical. Now note, when I said what I'm going to talk about, I didn't say I'm going to spend a lot of time comparing the Catholic and the Protestant position. You can only do so much in one presentation. Uh, it's actually rather hard to compare the Catholic and Protestant positions. Protestant positions are different between Luther and Calvin in certain complex ways. There are also the problem uh, of simply the words being used in different ways, and it's hard to get a nice, straightforward, you know, the train's running on the tracks, and then they clearly disagree. It's hard to get P and not P. This is true. No, I understand the same sentence in the same sense, but I think it's false. You get kind of things running into each other. I'll come back to that. I'm going to spend most of my time on the Catholic position, because in fact, it's, it's a complex answer of how we're saved by faith and, and by works. So the spoiler, the Catholic position is both faith and works play a significant role in, in Christian salvation, although in some important ways, faith is more fundamental. Okay, let me talk about works. By works, I am going to mean, the I'm going to emphasize the broad sense of the term. By works, I mean any voluntary human action. Anything you do that you can call voluntary. Now, that's very broad. And precisely what constitutes a voluntary act can be debated. Now, there are some clear cases of involuntary acts. If I you suddenly put a bright light in my face, I will blink. I cannot not blink. It's a sort of a reflex reaction. It's the doctor with a little rubber hammer on your knee, you know, and your knee goes, and you can't stop it from going. That's not a voluntary action. It's involuntary. There are some things that are quite voluntary. You decide what you'll have for lunch. You go to the lunch place. Oh, they go, oh, yeah, I think I'll have that. I mean, it's your choice. It's open. Now, there's lots of things that are complicated. We're not going to go into the complications. But to the degree that it's a voluntary act, that's a work. Note, crucially, if it's a voluntary act, you can be held accountable. You idiot, we told you before that the chicken lasagna here is horrible. And yet you chose it for lunch again, although you didn't trust us. It's your fault you're having a crummy lunch. Don't compare it up, complain to us. And that's fair. I mean, there are you if you do something involuntarily, voluntarily, you can, under certain conditions, be held accountable. They tend to go together. Responsibility, accountability tend to go with voluntariness. But note in the New Testament, when Paul is talking about works. I think it's fairly clear the more I read Paul, when he says we're not saved by works, he primarily means we're not saved by works of the Jewish law. I mean, read Galatians and Romans with that in mind, and I think it makes a lot more sense. And that's the crucial issue. What Paul is insisting is that faith, in a rather broad sense in Christ, saves not the Jewish law in its specificity. What Paul is concerned about is the relationship between God's covenant with Israel and now the coming of Christ and the opening up of that covenant to others. That's Paul's concern. Read Romans 9 through 11 as, as Paul struggles with the meaning of the covenant with Israel and others. But he insists, now those who do not follow the Jewish law, Gentiles, are included in God's saving covenant in Christ, 
And even for the Jews, the keeping of the law itself does not save. That's his central point. However, I will note, there are places in Paul where it looks like he isn't just talking about works of the law, keeping the Jewish law. He seems to be talking about sort of all moral behavior totally. I don't deny that. There's a tendency for Paul to, to talk in a much broader sense, but the focus is pretty clearly, I think, works of the law. If you want to see this argument laid out, this, this is generally referred to as the new perspective on Paul, stressing particularly the concrete argument about the Jewish covenant, the Jewish law. John Barclay, Paul and the Gift, it's on the handout there. Uh, it's a good recent book. It'll give you a very one of the best summaries, I think, of the way you'd see the argument about faith and works in Paul as in a specific context with the argument about the Jewish covenant. Now, in the, that's so the two senses of works, a broad sense, any voluntary act, narrow sense, works of the law. Now, faith, I'm going to spend more time on this. The word faith is even trickier. And here, I think Protestants and Catholics have often argued past each other. There is, again, a broad and a narrow sense. Both of them are rooted in the Bible. In fact, both are rooted in Paul. This is sort of the problem. In a broad sense, Faith can be understood as a total orientation of open trust and dependence on God. Just have faith in God, trust in God, depend upon God. Thus, Vatican II, in its, in its Constitution on Divine Revelation, De Verbum, says that the obedience of faith is, and I'm going to give a quotation, an obedience by which man commits his whole self freely to God offering the full submission of intellect and will to God who reveals. Note, full submission of the whole self freely to God. That it defines as faith. Here, faith is foundational for the entire Christian life. Faith is a way of life, and thus I've given you the handout there. Famous sentence of Paul, For in it the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That was a very important sentence for Luther. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is something you live by. It's a complete way of life, in a sense. A life of trust, dependence upon God. Faith is now then all-encompassing, in a certain sense. It's a disposition that forms the entire life. Now, that way of talking, you'll find in the Bible. You'll find it in prayer. You'll find it in liturgy. You'll find it in the Catholic tradition. But if you go and look at technical Catholic theology, if you go and look at Thomas Aquinas, this is the Thomistic Institute, you go look at Thomas Aquinas, you won't find very often faith used in that comprehensive sense. You'll find faith used in a narrower sense. There's a long theological tradition. If you ask of what guides the Christian life, you look at 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is remembered as the great sort of ode of praise to love, sort of red and sappy tones at weddings sometimes. Um, love is not jealous, blah, blah, blah. And it ends with, so. and I put this on the handout, so faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, Paul has told us what abides in the Christian life. Faith, hope, love. He's also told us which is most important. Love, note not faith. So now you have a kind of analysis. What's the Christian life about? What are the central virtues of the Christian life? Virtues understood now, habitual dispositions toward good behavior. 
the central dispositions the Bible has told us are faith, hope, and love, ordered in such a way that the highest is love. That becomes absolutely standard, patristic, early church, medieval theology. Everybody says that. Uh, and you have to say love is greatest because Paul says so. And it's a way of analyzing the Christian life, organizing the discussion. But now, second question, how, what differentiates the three? What differentiates faith, hope, and love? Well, again, they were, they were biblical. They were looking for biblical texts that would tell you. Well, with faith, we're lucky. We've got one. Hebrews 11.1 1, on the handout. Now, faith is the assurance or substance, substantia in Latin, hypostasis in Greek. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or proof argumentum in the Latin of things not seen. No, conviction, argument. That sounds like class, philosophy classes, arguments, convictions, things you believe. It sounds intellectual. Faith became the intellectual one of the three virtues. Hope and love are rooted in the will. Faith is rooted in the intellect. It's not a matter of knowledge, and there is an aspect of will. Faith becomes believing revelation to be true because God said it. It's believing God. It's depending upon God. Many, many things we believe because we trust in the people who tell us. I mean, how many classes could you get through if you had this, you yourself had to go out and prove every single thing the professor said from the first day of class? You'd never get through the class. The enterprise of teaching presumes that most teachers, most of the time, are saying the correct thing. I mean, you know, they have PhDs, blah, 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 peer review, et cetera, et cetera. You need to test something, disagree with them. But as I would sometimes tell students, you know, I know when I'm right, I'll tell you when I'm right, and I'm just not going to argue about it. I mean, you know, I tell you this happened on that date. I know these things. I'm just not going to argue about it very much. Um, faith is believing revelation because God said it. It's trusted. It's the intellectual side of trusting God for most of the medieval Catholic tradition. Note, faith is now rather specific. It is foundational. It's often pictured as sort of the first thing. You must come to start believing the Christian message, and that will then inspire hope. Hope inspires love. But faith, so faith is foundational, but it is now focused. So when a Catholic sometimes, particularly Catholics in the 16th century, would heard Luther say we're justified by faith alone, they would think he meant we're justified just by believing things, an intellectual act, which isn't what Luther meant at all. As I'll note, Luther was far more faith, is far more an act of the will, an act of trust. So you have these terms, you have said in a broad and a narrow sense of faith. Faith is a kind of total open commitment. Faith is this rather specific part of a triad of faith, hope, and love. Note, both are biblical. You can, you can find biblical examples of this use. In both cases, theologians are looking for ways of using language that will fit with Scripture. They've latched on to rather different aspects of Scripture. That was the first point I wanted to do, make some distinctions about terms. Second point, the argument over faith and works at various points in the church have been different, shaping the arguments. I've mentioned one already. First century in the New Testament, the argument over the place of the Jewish law in the Christian life, the works of the law, what role do they play? Do you need to keep them? Must a Gentile convert, if he's male, be 
circumcised? Must a Christian Gentile start keeping kosher? Uh, those are questions about concrete works. Um, and the argument Paul argued was that no, such need not be done. And Paul simply carried the day. I'm not going to talk much more about that. I want to go to the second example. There was an argument over the place of works really in grace, but faith played a role in the early 5th century, primarily in North Africa. On the one hand, you had a British monk named Pelagius who argued that God reveals to us we are what we ought to do. That's grace, telling you what you need to do. And then it's up to you to do it. He was an ascetic. He thought people were getting lazy. Uh, he actually was oddly kind of, a, of an elitist. I mean, you, you, it's a spiritual elitist and actually something among the Roman elite. You need, you need to get to it. You know, we've, now that the emperors have become Christian, we're getting lazy. We now do we return to a far more vigorous and this, you know, stuff we have, we're all sinful. We're doing the best we can. No, you're not. You can do better. Straighten up and fly right. Um, and he attacked Augustine because Augustine argued we are sinners. We always need the grace of God. What the Christian life is about is dependence upon the transition, the transforming power of God's grace. It's not up to us to do it all. We must, we must do things, but we are dependent on the grace of God always. It's Augustine that won the day in that case. Paul is strong in this. There's always a constant dependence upon God. Always the Christian is dependent upon God. And it's Augustine then who particularly makes the, the language of grace here central. The lower, so to speak, more fundamental than grace, than faith and works, is grace, which can be understood now in a wide variety of senses. But grace is always gift. That's a crucial point made throughout. Grace is gratis. You know, grace is gratia in Latin, which is just like gratis, giving, we still use the word in English. You get this gratis. You get it for nothing. It's a gift. That's why the Barclay book, for example, I noted there is Paul and the gift. It's the logic of gift giving. This becomes fundamental, and I would note everybody, absolutely everybody, in theology from, say, from Augustine through the Reformation, agrees we are saved only by the grace of God. No one denied that explicitly. Now you might say they fudged it. The question is, what does it mean to say you're saved by the grace of God? We're always completely dependent upon grace. Grace can be understood a number of different ways. Is it God looking upon you with favor? Is it God moving you? Is it God giving you new qualities? What is grace? But that it is all by grace was agreed by everybody. So the Reformation is an argument of whether or not we're saved by grace misses the point. Everybody agreed we're saved by grace. The question is, is what does grace do to save you? The 16th century argument was more complicated. In some ways, it was an argument about how to interpret Augustine, um, each side claiming Augustine for different kinds of senses. Let me say something quickly about Luther's answer. Um, again, I'm not going to spend much time on Luther. I, I'd rather spend my time trying to elaborate what I think is a fairly complex Catholic answer, reflecting the complexity of the Christian life and in the New Testament. Um, I would note, as it's an aside here, trying to lay out just what is the difference between the Catholic and particularly Lutheran position here is actually rather difficult. It's also 
difficult to see if there's actually a clear-cut disagreement. As uh, Andrew noted, I was on the drafting team as a Lutheran that produced the, produced the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, signed in 1997, yeah, ni no, 1999, between the Roman Catholic Church and most of the Lutheran churches in the world, that claimed that the other church actually doesn't today teach what one's own church condemns. Whatever may have been true about Lutherans in the past, what they now say they teach about justification is not what the Catholic Church condemns. And the Lutherans will say, well, what we actually want to condemn isn't what we understand now the Catholics say they teach. I mean, whether there actually is here a straightforward argument, disagreement about justification is difficult to see. You can read the text. It's online. It's on the Vatican website. Just put Joint Declaration on Doctrine of Justification and it will pop up. It's not that long. Um, it's about 40 five or six paragraphs. Um, it was written, I can say, with blood, sweat, and tears. Um, I went into a building to work on this. I was in charge of the English, trans I and a friend at English translation. I went on Sunday night, went out for a walk on Wednesday, came out on Saturday, and simply worked all the rest of the time <laughs> for a week. Um, however, let me try and say what I think the Lutheran position is. The question is, how does grace save? Luther did narrow the question, are we saved by faith or works? His primary question isn't about simply salvation, but about justification. How does the sinner, we're all sinners, born such, come to be accepted as righteous by God, the God who always judges justly? He is the Judas Eustex, the just judge, Justus Eudex, the just judge, you see at the end of 2 Timothy. There are two sides to Luther's answer, how God comes to accept us as righteous. On the one hand, our justice is always Christ's, he said. It is never our own. It is only imputed or reckoned or adjudged ours. Psalm 32 at the beginning, blessed is the man to whom God does not reckon his sin or impute his sin, which is then quoted by Paul in Romans 4, picked up strongly by Luther. For Luther now does not say we remain unchanged totally. You'll sometimes hear Catholics say that, and that's just wrong. But Luther does say is whatever change comes with you, it's not a justice that can stand before God because all human justice is tainted by sin, if, it's, if God looks at my righteousness, even though I've changed, even though I just the grace has changed me, I will still be judged by God to be unworthy, and I'll be damned. The only justice, Luther argued, that can avail before the judgment seat of God is Jesus Christ, which is you is legally imputed, reckoned, in a legal kind of sense. That's one side of Luther's position. The other side is, well, how do I get in on this? How is this righteousness applied to me? Answer, faith. Faith is understood now as what receives this imputation of righteousness. The focus falls on trust, fiducia. Fides, fiducia, uh, fides is, 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 is faith in Latin. Trust is fiducia. You can see the words are much closer together in Latin than they are in, in English. Faith falls on trust, on trust. Believing in the other's faithfulness. And for, for Luther, 
Trust is fundamentally receptive. If I trust you're going to do something for me, I just wait for you to do it. I don't do anything. Doing something often is showing that I don't trust. I mean, if I tell my wife, I'll come by and pick you up at five o'clock, but you know, she's standing there with the Uber thing ready to hit it, knowing that I'm in fact horribly forgetful. Well, you didn't trust me. And she'll say, well, on good grounds, or you've forgotten things plenty in the past. Which is say, well, yeah, that's true, I know, but still. Um, trust is receptive. It's passive in a certain sense. Love for Luther, the reason why love, despite Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't central, is that Paul is active, that's active, and your love is always tainted by your sinfulness. The only thing that will avail for the judgment of God is your pure receptiveness. You're doing nothing and receiving the righteousness of Christ. So, Luther's argument. That's why, despite the fact of Paul's 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love, Luther always has to sort of skate that and say, no, no, it's faith, because faith is receptive and it receives Christ. Love is our response. Our response is always inadequate. Even faith as a human action isn't what saves you. Faith isn't the work that saves for Luther. It's only what faith receives as a human act. Faith is as fallible as anything else. Now, I spend most of my time giving the Catholic answer. You can see that for faith, for Luther, it really is faith and not works. But for him, there is a, there is a clear kind of contrast here. The Catholic position is, is a good deal more complicated, I would argue, because I think it's, it's more faithful to the complete range of the New Testament. To put it simply, not this isn't simple, to put it in summary, this isn't going to be simple at all, I'm afraid. The grace of God that saves is pure gift. It is received primarily by faith, but faith only as united with hope and love. It's a total attitude of the self that receives God's grace. The grace we receive moves us toward God. And we trust that the new person, always in unity with Christ, will herself or himself live in Christ in such a way that come the last day, we will be judged in unity with Christ and the saints, worthy of eternal life. I've been working on the Council of Trent lately. What's really interesting to me is the importance, in fact, of last judgment to these questions. An idea, this concept has rather fallen out of a lot of contemporary Christian piety. We don't worry quite as much about the last judgment. Look up last judgment passages in the New Testament. I didn't realize this about two years ago. Well, you know what you'll almost never find? Talk about mercy. It's talk, it's talk about justice. What you do in the dark will be brought to the light. Read Matthew 25, which is the sheep and the goats, where you get the great passage. I was naked. When did you clothe me? I was hungry. When did you feed me? Well, Christ has come back now to judge who did what. Paul says, as I'll note later on, we will be judged by the works we did in the body, and God is a just judge. A certain aspect of the Catholic discussion was that the real New Testament emphasis upon judgment and that we will be found, must be in some sense be found worthy. Is the Lutheran position, the question was, in fact, God will treat us, treat us as if we were worthy. But first John says, we are called children of God and we are. Is it that God is willing to treat us of this legal fiction, impute something to it? Or, in fact, does God's word do it? Are we made real children of God? That was the crucial question. 
at least for the Catholics, particularly at the Council of Trent. Here I'm going to be a bit technical on some things. For Aquinas, and for really all of the Catholic theologians in this period, the Catholic, the, our life is a journey. Now, I don't mean this as sort of, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, you know, I, I sang Kumbaya a lot. Uh, there's this picture from college, which I'll give anything for somebody to destroy, of me with really long hair and little hippie glasses playing the banjo at a folk mass. Um, you know, the sort of thing, ooh, it just made me tremble. Um, um, I did all that. Um, you know, hey man, life is a trip, you know, it's a journey. Well, it sort of is, isn't it? I mean, we're, and we're, we're journeying somewhere, we're going to God. Crucial for Aquinas, and I think this is crucial for the whole narrative of the scripture. God creates things for ends. Everything has a telos, a final cause a thing toward which it tends naturally to move. For many things, it's simply their nature. Dogs tend toward dogginess. They flourish as dogs. When a, when a dog can sort of be a dog, sort of, be, sort of express its dogginess, that's its, its fullness, its reality, its joy. I grew up out in the country. I had a great dog, Schwacko. Uh, and he, you know, he, said, he could run around out in the field. He loved to chase butterflies. Once in a great while, well, he'd catch them, and yeah, yeah, it's horrible. And he would sort of go off butterflies for about five minutes, but Schwacker had no memory. Uh, he'd be out chasing butterflies in the field again. Um, trees want to flourish as trees um, when they grow in the light and flourish. Um, that's what God does. He creates things for ends with natures, and they seek to fulfill their natures naturally. What about us? What is the end for which God creates us? And the standard answer is eternal life, intimate communion with God in Christ and the Spirit. But now note, that's not an achievement we can achieve on our own. Dogs, Schwacko, we had to give him, you know, coloration and stuff, and he could just be a dog and flourish as a dog. Um, but seeing God, again, I said... Again, to go back to First John, we will see God as he is. That's not something you can do. The direct vision of the essence of God, which is Catholic teaching what we will have in the last day, is not something a creature is capable of. That requires some special gift of God elevating us. But we are open to that end. We can do that in many ways. Um, but note, that's the end toward which we're moving. <coughs> That requires an elevation of our powers and faculties. It requires something special, a gift, and that is simply by grace. I want to talk about grace more than faith, because grace is here the important point. We, so for Aquinas and all the Catholic theology, we can only reach that end by God taking us there. Grace is often understood by Aquinas as a movement. We are moved in a way toward God. We are stimulated. We're moved toward that that greater depth in God. Finally, toward the last day, when we're lifted into eternal communion with God. And note these, he has a standard medieval theology, faith, hope, and love are theological virtues. They're forms of participation in God. Faith is already beginning to participate in the direct vision of God. Love is already beginning to participate in the love that unites the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. 
Hope is already beginning to enjoy the highest possible good. So even the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, are part of our being taken up experientially and moved toward the final end of all things. Now note, so far I've said nothing about sin. The need for grace goes along simply with what God intends for us. Sin makes matters worse, of course. It means God has to give us grace not only to elevate us, but heal us. So that all grace is both elevating and healing at the same time. Now, how do we get into, how does that grace come to us? It comes to us as gift, as the proclamation of the gospel, as baptism, in the Eucharist. There are endless numbers of graces that we receive, and we receive them by a kind of fundamental openness. We receive them by the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, that openness of the self, but particularly faith. Note, Aquinas is willing to say, we are saved by faith. Paul says it, he's got to say it. We're saved by faith as that attitude of believing the proclamation of the gospel is foundational throughout the Christian life. Not just at the beginning, but throughout. There is a foundational role. For Aquinas, it's always interesting the way he'll see foundation and summit. So that the foundation is faith, the summit is love. Hope is always sort of dropped out here. It doesn't play as much of a role. But faith is foundational. Love is the sort of summit of all things. That's a standard kind of Aquinas and other Catholic theologians kind of move. That you're taken into that movement is always sheer grace. You can never merit it. It's something God simply gives you. If you Interesting, at the very end, I put on the handout there, Aquinas discusses this at the end of the first part of the second part of the Summa, Questions 113 on justification, 114 on merit. Quiet thinks you really can't merit that much. What you can merit as a reward in this life is if you accept grace, you'll get more grace. There is a kind of growth. But you can't merit being accepted, being taken up into the movement of grace at all. If you fall away in mortal sin, you can't merit getting back. And you can't really merit staying there. That you're in that movement. That is something you can only thank God for. Even though within that movement, there are relations of I do X, and because I do X, Y results. And sometimes that can be understood in terms of reward or consequent or merit. Because that's one point, I think, essential. Seeing the Christian life as a movement toward this consummation. But now there's a second point. Crucial, I think. There's a general slogan in almost all Catholic theology, grace perfects, not destroys nature. Grace doesn't destroy who you are as a human being. Grace perfects and elevates who you are as a human being. But it doesn't destroy that, doesn't negate it. God moves all things toward their end in a way appropriate to their nature, to what they are. And if you want to do something with a thing or an animal, you have to realize what its nature is, what it's capable of. If, I mean, you don't, you don't enroll dogs in classes. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, a waste to, to sort of have a dog sit in a class. I mean, it, that isn't the way it works. Um, there was an enormous dog when I was in college. He was half St. Bernard, half Great Dane. He was the biggest dog I've ever seen in my entire life. And he would sit in classes. He sort of liked it. He'd sit there. And the professor would always come in and sort of do a double take when Bark, that was the dog's name, would sit there in class. But I mean, that's, you don't do this. Or similarly, 
Training, I think this is metaphorical. Sometimes people train a vine and it'll go up a, it'll go up a trellis. Think of the difference between that and training a dog. A dog, you can do rewards and, you know, good dog, bad dog, treats, no treats. Well, I mean, you can't do that to a vine. You can say good vine, bad vine, and it's not going to have any effect. If you're going to move a vine, here you got to use physical coercion. you got to kind of train it and make it do things. What about us? What's the relation that's appropriate between you and your end? Now, remember, back at the beginning, we are free and responsible creatures. And one aspect of being free and responsible is being accountable which involves sometimes rewards. If you do virtuous actions, they lead to you being a virtuous person. That is the essential reward for virtue. If you study hard, you will know things. You'll have skills. That's the deep reward. Punishment, if you do vicious actions, you'll be, you'll be a vicious, vice, if you do actions of vice, you'll be a vicious person. If you simply punt classes, you won't know much. I mean, you won't have skills that you don't have. There is a kind of relation of moral fittingness that's appropriate to a human being and their end. And broadly speaking, there are loads of conditions that screw this up, but we tend to think that's the way it ought to be. Read the Psalms. They're always saying, look, the good die young and the evil flourish like the green bay tree. And they complain this isn't just. The just way ought to be hard work should get you along. Virtue should be rewarded in an appropriate way. Evil should not flourish. Um, does God respect that? If God's created us that way, and that's our nature, shouldn't it be the case that God moves us to our end, the end of eternal life with God, in a way that fits the way God created us? Shouldn't grace perfect nature? And it's of human nature that we are free and responsible beings who most appropriately have a relation of merit or demerit to our end. Virtuous acts produce virtuous people. Hard work produces an A on a test. Shouldn't that be the case with us too? And isn't that the way the Bible portrays it? And as I noted earlier, the rather... Strong language of judgment. There's more language of judgment in the New Testament than you might think, and actually a lot of it comes from the mouth of Jesus. I mean, you can't just find it in Paul. It's in, it's in Christ. Paul says, we will be judged on the last day by the works we've done in the body. I think essential to the sort of outlook of Catholic theology is an argument that freedom and accountability are a part of human dignity. It's part of, the, it's part of being in the image of God. God's speaks to miscellaneous about various creatures. Let there be light and there is light. God speaks to human beings directly at them and expects us to respond. We are responsible to God in the straightforward sense. We respond to God in a kind of direct way. And that that responsibility and accountability is part of human dignity. It's part of what it means to be in the image of God. What this means then is two kinds of points. God, in fact moves us in a way that doesn't violate who we are and will fulfill us as moral and accountable beings. Now, this means two things. First, here, here it gets a little tricky, and I'm not going to go into the tricks, so to speak. It does mean that God doesn't move us the way you might move this chair. I mean, I just pick up the chair and move it. 
Uh, and that is not violating the integrity of chair as chair. Um, but if I wanted Andrew to sit over there and I just picked Andrew, you know, I really was a bum Hulk or something. I pick Andrew up and whoever and just dunk him down. You might think that's not treating Andrew the way he should be treated. You can treat a chair that way. You don't treat a pe person by physical coercion. It would be, I should add, you know, ask Andrew, would you please go sit over there? You know, it would work X, Y, Z. Good reason I've respected. Andrew would feel respected. It'd be appropriate that I do that. What about God moving us? No. God generally comes in ways and addresses us as human beings. And it is part of the teaching of the Council of Trent that although one talks about, I've talked a great deal about God moving us, that's the standard language being used, it is Catholic dogma that, that, that grace can be rejected. There is cooperation, at least in this sense. The Council of Trent, in fact, only gives one example of the cooperation needed with grace, and that is that you don't reject it. Now, you want exactly how all that works, you get, particularly with St. Thomas Aquinas, it gets very complicated. Thomas Aquinas says a stronger doctrine of predestination than you might think. Um, but I'm not going to go into that. But no, God respects it by moving us generally by persuasion, by working within our freedom. But also, second, let me make sure I hear my notes. It, it leads to the notion of reward. Our works do play a role. The New Testament is full of language of reward. When the New Testament speaks of final judgment, it talks about reward and punishment. I've noted Matthew 25. Or Paul, this is 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. God does not forget what he has done in creating us as free and responsible creatures. And we will be free and accountable creatures at the end also. But what about eternal life? Now, I put on the handout, these are, these are horrible sentences. Um, Latin tends to write long, it's not as bad as German, um, but it tends to write long, complicated sentences, and I can't find my copy of the handout. Should be here somewhere, because they hand me extra copy. Here, it's, it's interesting in talking about merit. This is the Council of Trent, so this is, a, this is Catholic doctrine. Eternal life should therefore be set before those who persevere in good works to the end. They persevere in good works to the end. And who hope in God, both as grace mercifully promised to the children of God through Jesus Christ, so it's a gift, and as a reward that, according to the promise of God himself, will faithfully be given them for their good works and merits. It is both gift and merit. As St. Augustine famously said, when God rewards our works, he's crowning his own gifts. Because God is the one that moved us. It is by grace that we do anything we can do. And thus God gives us grace, and then God crowns those gifts in reward. We cooperate, he moves us as accountable human beings, and then rewards that. It's both gift, and it is fun most fundamentally gift, but the gift then, is then reaches its culmination in merit, in a certain sense. In that sense, even being worthy of eternal life. I think there's an point, <coughs> important point to be stressed here, 
We are not judged in isolation from grace. When I talk about final judgment, I was critical of a kind of Protestant position sometimes, which can sound like God's judgment is a legal fiction. God is going to pretend I'm worthy of eternal life by, by not looking at me, but, look, but looking at, at, at Christ instead. And that seems to me is, is problematic. But now it's not the case for the Catholic view. God will look at us in isolation from Christ because we really are in Christ. That's not a legal fiction. The reality of grace that moves within us means that when God judges us, he judges us as creatures in Christ. We are not judged in isolation from grace that inheres within us and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Through grace, we truly are in Christ and will be judged as creatures who live in Christ. What we do in the dark will be brought to the light, but in that light will also be visible the grace that has dwelled within us and moved us toward God. If we are in Christ through grace, then we will be judged as branches who are connected to the true vine, as members who are connected to the true head. And so note, this is the end of that quotation from Trent that I just gave you. A Christian should never trust a glory in himself and not in the Lord, whose bounty towards all men is so great, that he will have the things which are his own gifts be their merits. I'd really stress that sentence because it's the core, I think, of the Catholic position. He will have the things which are his own gifts be their merits. This is a rather tricky issue. It is in some sense, your merit, you've done it, but you've done it only by the grace of God. In a rather strong sense of only by the grace of God. Aquinas does think that God, in fact, can create impulses in you. God can help move you along the way. If you cooperate with God, you will, he can create thoughts, impulses. Now, you don't always cooperate with your thoughts. Think actually how many thoughts actually you don't create. Now, they can be evil thoughts. They can be bad thoughts. Concupiscence. Um, people, concupiscence is a term that's widely known by Catholic laity today. Is it? I'm going to the term concupiscence. Okay, this is a Thomistic Institute group. Concupiscence are, are movements of the self that are pre-voluntary. Before you've even chosen to do anything about it, you feel that. Now, I must admit, the standard example, because of St. Augustine, are sexual urges. But I'm a professor. The professorial sin uh, is envy. Believe me. What professors don't like is not getting praised. Um, that's what they don't like. And envy, and envy is a sort of pre-voluntary thing. Somebody else gets an award, and there's a little voice in the back of my head. That jerk. That suck up. Um, that's the only reason they get praised. I mean, my work gets ignored, blah, blah, blah. Now, I may disagree with it. I may stop it. I immediately try and suppress it. It's not sinful in that case. But there are things that all the impulses in you those thoughts in the back of your head that are there before you even think about it and cooperate with it, that are important to your behavior. Grace can work within you in an opposite way. For Aquinas, grace produced motions, motio, quite literally, impulses, moving you along the way, putting you in the way of people at certain moments in your life. People ask me, I was asked here about why, I, why did I become a theologian? Well, because in college, when I went off to college in the fall of 1969, I ended up in a dorm with a bunch of religion majors. Um, I had never thought of majoring in religion. 
I didn't come from that devout a family. And these, these were really interesting guys, and I sort of admired them. They were smart. You should take religion one. It wasn't even 101. It was one. Um, I took the course. It was really interesting. I sort of into this stuff. I mean, that's the sort of accidents, but are they accidents or are they divine providence? I mean, so God is at work in you in all kinds of ways that are sub-voluntary, so to speak. They're not your choice. I didn't choose to end up in a dorm full of religion majors. If you'd give me the choice, I probably would have said no when I was 18. But motion within you, but God always gives you those gifts, but in such a way it cooperates with you as a free and responsible being. So that in the end, God wants to give us his gifts in a way that respects our freedom and responsibility, so they end up being also our merits as we are united with Christ. I remember when I was a theology student um, working on this, I was not involved in this before my time, the Lutheran-Catholic dialogue on justification in the United States. And the Catholics spoke of the crowning gift of a merited righteous salvation. The crowning gift of a merited salvation. It's the same point that we will merit our salvation is pure divine gift. We must be involved. We're engaged. We can reject it, but it is pure divine gift. You can do nothing but thank God for it. You cannot boast in yourself. This, I think, is the, is the answer. For, for the Catholic position, what's foundational about salvation is grace, which is finding participation in God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. That is received by faith, hope, and love. With faith is fundamental. So that, that movement of belief is at the beginning. It culminates in a life lived in Christ, i.e. works in that broad sense I gave it. But those works are finally all a function of grace working in us. So yes, I live but Christ in me, and I live now within Christ. That lines of Paul are quite important. Or Paul says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is within you both to will and to do. Well, you might say, well, she is it. Is it I'm supposed to work it out with fear and trembling, or is it God in me to will and do? Well, it's both. That's the point. So if again, so the question that was asked, is it faith or works? It's both. With grace fundamental, faith being receptive, and works then being the spelling out of that within the concrete Christian life that respects our nature as human creatures. And on that point, I will end. Thank you. We have time for conversations, some questions, responses, anything. Rick Betts. Yes, I'm back. Uh, what's the new perspective on Paul that you have listed here in the bottom? That term, which comes from the middle of the 20th century, um, referred to a shift in how one understood Paul. There's an argument. I remember reading this when I was, you know, sort of read theology. It particularly if, if you're a Protestant, but to some degree any sort of post-Augustinian Christian, post-after Augustine, it can seem odd. Paul has these arguments, makes these great things about faith and justification not being by works, and everybody ignored him for centuries until Augustine discovered what he really was all about. Well, that's sort of odd. I mean, if Paul's so important, why didn't anybody pick this up right off the bat? Why did it wait till Augustine? Well, maybe it's that Augustine read Paul in a quite different way than Paul wrote Paul. I mean, for famous article on Paul and the introspective conscience of the West. And the attendance by Christopher Stendhal, Swedish theologian who taught at Harvard, who, who argues what Augustine does, I mean, Augustine is now analyzing himself a lot. 
mean, think of the think of the confessions of Augustine. I had a friend who quit reading the book at that point about where he's eating the stolen pears, and he's all upset about having eaten stolen pears. And you know, for friend says, "Look, I mean, I grew up in the country. I ate stolen fruit. I must admit, I did too. I grew up in the country. I remember eating stolen watermelon. I didn't steal it. My older brother did. Uh, but nevertheless, I joined him out in the swamp eating the stolen watermelon. I mean, who's gonna, who's gonna, as a grown man, gonna sit around being all worked up about eating stolen fruit as a kid? I mean, grow up, get a life." But that's, but Augustine, it's because why Augustine did it. Why did the stolen pears taste good? Because they were stolen. There's an attraction of evil itself. There's something, the matter here, Paul, I mean, Augustine examines motives deep inside him. And he's very sensitive to the way in which Augustine is vainglorious. I mean, this is a guy who from the beginning of his career, at every single sermon he gave, had a stenographer write it down. Come on. That's an ego. <laughs> um, and Augustine knows it. He's all, I mean, that's what makes the Confessions of Augustine a great book. And so they start reading Paul in terms of this intense sense of unworthiness. And the whole business about the argument with Judaism and the works of the law falls away. Paul becomes this text for the introspective conscience. For Martin Luther tearing himself up for Pascal and the and his religious experiences, the new the new perspective said, you know, that's all very interesting, but that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul is first and foremost interested in a complicated question about the status of the Jewish covenant and whether a Gentile convert can eat with a Jew. Can the Jew can they eat together and not keeping kosher laws? Must a male Gentile convert be circumcised? That's what Paul's about. This introspective conscience stuff. Now, again, this one not entirely with a new, new perspective. It's sort of there. I mean, it's hard to not read Romans 7 and see Paul, you know, oh, the body of death within me, blah, blah, blah. It is something there. But primarily, I think Paul is talking about, when Paul talks about faith and works, he's talking about the Christian faith in a very broad, comprehensive sense and works of the law. So the new perspective is stressing that rather than the typical way Paul got read from Augustine on in the West in which the sort of introspective wrestlings of St. Augustine become the lens through which Paul is read. You still do have defenders of the old way of reading Paul. And again, I'll note there is something there. But it's, I mean, it's like reading a literary text. I mean, more than reading philosophy or something. I mean, Paul is doing complicated things. I think he does have the Jewish issue in his mind, but he also, I mean, he says very clearly in Romans 2 and 3, the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. I mean, so it's not just a Jewish issue. Works are bigger, although he really focuses on works of the law. Yes? Um, what is problematic about the, the Protestant doctrine that you think you're in? For me, what is finally important, and again, I don't... Here, I want to be a little careful. Because, I, I again, I don't think in and of themselves these need to be church-dividing. I think there's a way of accommodating these. But I think the deep problem to, is just what I've stressed. Does grace engage the self in a way that elevates, utilizes, brings into communion with God uh, us as fully free and responsible beings. And thus, I think you end up with a doctrine of merit. Or you might end up, say, with a doctrine of the infallibility of the church. God uses human intelligence so that the church can say, 
with authority, divine authority, what is the gospel? Or you have the sacrifice of the mass. It isn't just that Christ offers himself on the cross and that sacrifice is represented in the mass. We can offer it too. We're taken up into Christ and we offer Christ in the mass. Uh, now, it's, it, our offering is, is worth, has any worth only because it participates in Christ's self-offering, but there really is our offering being taken up and used. There really is a sacrificial aspect of that part. That's what Luther, and again, whether this is Calvin is a complicated question, and I want to be careful here, but Luther is always deeply worried about any the notion of grace taking up, using, and incorporating into it the human effort, I think, straightforwardly out of a deep worry that you, the human side will be sinful and unacceptable. That's, that's my sense. Although, read the joint, I mean, it's only about 10 pages. Read the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification. You really can state the Lutheran position in a way that comes much closer to the Catholic position. I think the problematic, on justification narrowly, I think the problems come when you spell it out ecclesiologically where the grace issues become. Yes, Andrew? Um, I was just wondering, one of the, at the very beginning of your lecture, when you were kind of distinguishing between the broad and narrow sense of works and described as any voluntary human actions, you yeah. mentioned that there were some complications that you didn't want to get into. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us a hint. Well, there's two kinds of complications that relate to this. One, it's just, the, and first time we do it with voluntary, two kinds of complications there. Again, you can give crystal clear cases, particularly of involuntary acts. I mean, I, put, if I, I believe it is the case. I flash a light in front of your, your, your face, you will blink um, with a bright enough light. I mean, that's, that's involuntary. And perhaps there are strictly voluntary acts, like we're, often they're trivial acts that you don't care about. I mean, you, you go and there's a, you have to buy a pencil, and a, you know, but they're both normal black lead pencils. One's colored red, one's colored blue, which do you want to choose one? It's aren't you? A lot of our acts, why do you do what you do? when it's really important especially. It's a choice of yours, but there's also all sorts of deep things going on. Why did I major in theology? It was an accident, part of the dorm I got. And it was also because taking a bunch of theology courses and becoming sort of a conservative Christian really baffled my father. And I liked that. <laughs> and this is, not, I, I graduated high school in 1969. I'm your baby boomer, rebellion, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, so I, again, I had long hair. I was, I was kicked out of high school in rural Virginia um, in 1968. I led a protest demonstration. I took off my socks, uh, for which I was suspended from school for two days. Um, sounds funny now, but it didn't, I must say, the fall of 1968. Um, uh, you know, and so, and my father, okay, kids will be kids. They're rebellious. But then, my father's a very secularized guy. When I started reading theology classes, what in the world is this kid doing? You know, and now it upset him, which is, I, I do think, you know, part of me, sort of perverse way of kids. None, none of you are 18 or 19, I know. You're all perfectly mature, way more mature than I was at 18 or 19. Um, but when I was 18 or 19, I wasn't even mature, and I think there was a side of me, you know. That, so was it voluntary? Or were there deep kinds of motivations, movements, I mean, voluntary is a complicated question. Second, there are deep philosophical issues now about straightforward physical determinism. Mm -hmm. And the, the question of compatibility between saying, finally, all you do and think is rooted in your brain, and your brain just works by straightforward physical laws. Mm -hmm. 
That's a really complicated question, which I'm not going to go into, and I'm not ready to go into, and don't know enough about to go into. Um, that, but then there's a second set of issues. Aquinas thinks God can move you infallibly to do something without violating your freedom, but move you infallibly. God really is closer to you for Aquinas. God is closer to you than you are to yourself. That's not just piety. That's metaphysical truth. You can do nothing without God moving you. Nothing happens. No, I mean, literally no rock falls on a planet 18 million miles away without God, in Aquinas' terms, reducing potency to act. So by infallibly, just to people, you mean like irresistibly? It will all, well, it will always, not, it always will happen. You can resist. And so infallibly just means it always will happen. But, it, but here's the power of God. Now, this is omnipotence. Nick, right? God can omnipotently make it to be the case that infallibly Nick will do X and Nick will do it perfectly, freely. So God can infallibly bring it about that Nick does it absolutely freely. Because God is above freedom and necessity in terms of intra-creation intra, intra realities. God is... God can work within freedom. I mean, when Nick decides Nick will do X and Nick moves Nick to do X, does that violate Nick's freedom? No, that is Nick's freedom. But if God really is closer to Nick than he is to himself, God is the fundamental source and living reality that keeps Nick moving, then God can move Nick too without violating Nick's freedom. I can't. I'm external. I mean, I have to really point that gun at his head, do something like that. Maybe I can talk him into it. That doesn't do it. But for me, infallibly to do it, maybe it you know, requires my drugging him, moving him uh, with a you know, gun to his head. But not God. I just, uh, so there's a complicated question here about freedom and sin. If you say God can move everything, then why didn't God stop sin? Now, now we're really into deep problems, okay, which I don't know the answer to. Does Aquinas address that question? Yeah, sure. Uh, and Aquinas' answer may not be one you'll like. <laughs> um, tw question 23. Prima par is question 23, which is predestination. Aquinas says a bunch of things. The, the, the issue is it isn't, quite as, it isn't quite worked out clearly yet for Aquinas. He's still thinking of, he's still thinking of God sort of confronting fallen humanity and electing some for salvation. He thinks it better reflects God's mercy and justice to save some and leave some in sin. What's striking is that for centuries, everybody found that to be a perfectly adequate explanation. Oh, yeah, of course. If God had saved everybody, then we wouldn't see how God's justice works. It's much better to have a world in which there's mercy and justice than a world with only one or the other. I must say, I don't find that works at all. <laughs> I mean, that's a, these are the sort of... What is it... We don't have any philosophy grad students here. I mean, this is a deep problem. I and mean, I think there is a point at which you find an argument at a sort of deep fundamental level convincing or not. And Aquinas and most medievals, early modern, found that argument, well, it's better to have a world in which God saves some and leaves others in damnation than I have that, because it better reflects God's mercy and justice. You'll find, I mean, that's, just Aquinas, that's not simply Aquinas, it's scads of people. Um, I find that problematic. So I think there has to be, in fact, a moment of freedom in which it is capable of humanity 
in some sense, resisting God. Resisting God. Um, now, he, that's why I said I'm not really a Thomist in a pure sense. This is where John Dunn Scotus. Scotus, just like the Supreme Court of the United States, whenever I go to Google's, I have to do something to avoid just getting Supreme Court stuff. Um, John Dunn Scotus is one who then argues much more about freedom. And he's also, Scotus is one who really does ask much more about predestination, God just seeing everything. Um, Scotus is a brilliant man, but he's almost impossible to read. It's actually, this is, this is today's absolutely useless piece of information. Um, he's John, du John, that was his name. He was from the town of Duns, which was just across the English border into Scotland. And he was from Scotland. So he's John from Duns, the Scot. Scotus's theology, you can find it online, is incredibly complicated. It's a very complicated logical scheme in his head. So if you just start talking all this Scotus theology, people think you're just talking gibberish. So if so you have somebody that just sounds like they're talking gibberish, you say they're talking like a dunce. And that is, believe it or not, the etymology of the word dunce. <laughs> a dunce is somebody who talks like John Dunn Scotus. Look it up in an etymological dictionary. That is the etymology of the word dunce. Um, but I mean, the, the issue of freedom here is complicated. And among the Thomists, this is the Thomist Institute, there have been vigorous arguments about about what's called double agency, that God can move within me without violating my freedom, um, with issues about particularly how then humans can sin. This has been a pretty, again, I, I, I have a kind of enormously complicated argument I've never worked on hard enough of why we'll never solve that problem. But that's another matter. I think now we're dealing with divine mysteries. I think you should resist, I think a theologian should resist appealing to divine mystery as long as you can. But at some point, divine mystery isn't that you can say nothing. It's that you got. It's that you can never end up saying enough. There's always another thing to be said because there's always a problem that keeps drawing you on. You never. I mean, a divine mystery. You never touch bottom, so to speak. You know. Okay, that's done. Other questions. I'm sorry, I've rattled on here a long time. Yes. Um, now that you mention it, um, I'm trying to think of a good, there is, there will, uh, there will soon be appearing the Cambridge, Camp, the Cambridge Companion of the Council of Trent, in which I wrote the article on original sin and justification. You can email, if somebody wants a sort of summary of the Council of Trent on these things, just email me. You can find my email address on the CUA website. Just go to Catholic University of America, put in Michael Rouge. It'll pop up my email address. Send me, I'll send you the mail. It'll, I don't know when it's coming out. Other than that, yes. Um, there's, there's a good summary in, the title is Justification by Faith. It's edited, it's the Lutheran Catholic Dialogue in the United States done in 1983. And you'll, it's, one of the editors is going to be think. Joseph Burgess, B-U-R-G-E-S-S. -S. Put in his title, Justification by Faith. Put in my article uh, um, on a book search of some sort, like a library. Put in Joseph Burgess as the author, and you'll find a bunch of articles and summaries there. Or I, I have myself been working on this question a good deal, and I wrote a kind of summary for this handbook of the Council of Truth. And again, send, if somebody else, again, send me an email, and I'll send you the typescript of the essay. It's not long. I mean, it's just a book check. Other questions, comments? Yes. Uh, 
Just, just this question, as a matter of fact. Um, I was asked to do, it was precisely working on Aquinas on Mary. Um, I was asked to do an essay for a, an issue of a journal, Modern Theology, it was doing an, an Aquinas and Dialogue issue, and I did ecumenical dialogue, and the editor is a friend of mine. Um, and he said, you know, why don't you do the Protestant? Why don't you do the Augustine and, I mean, Aquinas and the Protestants? And so I thought, I'll, I'll do something. That I've never, you know, I'll try and understand something in Aquinas I've never understood, which is Aquinas is saying we never merit justification itself, but we will merit eternal life. On a surface, that's a little odd, and I had never, I couldn't figure this out. So you know, I'll work on that. And you know, at the end, I thought, yeah, there's all this business about moving things in, in accord with their nature and that sort of business. And at the end, I thought, I wasn't called together convinced, but I thought, hmm, there's something there. And it sort of grew, and by the time, five or six years later, I'd come back to it over and over again and other little issues here and there. Um, and I would see the way, oh, yeah, this issue, that relates to this over here, and that relates to this over here, that relates to this other, to the point where in the end I simply wasn't a Lutheran anymore. But with these issues, now, I mean, friends of mine, Protestant friends of mine said, you became a Catholic because of the issue of merit? How in the world can you do this? Um, you know, well, God works in various ways. Um, so it was, again, a kind of accident. It was partially because I got asked to do an essay on Aquinas on dialogue, and I decided to work on questions of merit. Um, there is, I would note, if, if, because I'm doing bibliography here, again, you get a professor, this is what you get. Um, there is a, a short, very good piece on Aquinas on these questions. There's a book entitled, really cleverly, The Theology of Thomas Aquinas. Um, <laughs> but the... Author, the one to look it up under is Warakow, W-A-W-R-Y-K-O-W, Polish name, W-A-W-K-Y-R-O-W, and there's an article in there on grace. It's by far, it's a strikingly clear article on Aquinas on grace. Although I would say in general, in most, in most cases, secondary readings on Aquinas are not as clear as just reading Aquinas. Although you need a help. A help will help. But in the end, the best thing to read in Aquinas is Aquinas. Questions, comments, responses, queries, anything else? Yes? Um, you've done some work on baptism. On baptism, yes. Yeah. Um, in Catholic theology, you believe that it does something? Yeah. Right? Uh, versus some Protestants think it's just like a song. Yeah, right. Can you talk more about that and what the differences are? Right. Um, and you've got a number of different positions here. Um, for Catholics, for Orthodox, for Lutherans. Baptism unites you with Christ. It, it's a fundamental grace. It removes original sin. Um, you arise from baptism, cleanse. Now, that doesn't mean the disorders of... The disorder of one's appetites, speaking technically, that is an effect of original sin are not all removed. You still have concupiscence. You still have disordered desires. It's still there. Um, but you are not a sinner. Uh, when, when you're baptized, because you're now united with Christ. Uh, and to be a sinner is to be separated from Christ in a fundamental sense. Um, again, you can read 
good, I mean, it's an excellent one-page summary of this is the Council of Trent's decree on, on original sin, where you get a sort of theology of baptism. There's no separate state on baptism. It's in the statement on original sin, because that's where the problems were. You've got at least two other kinds of positions. One is, again, I said Luther, Luther actually tends to be pretty close to the Catholics, except for the complicated business about still being a sinner in certain senses. For Calvin, an interesting point about Calvin, here, here Calvin and Luther are radically different. There's a tendency for Luther to play off the New Testament against the Old. Fairly strongly sometimes, law and gospel. Now law is not, law and gospel is not Old Testament and New. There's a sneaking drift that way sometimes. Calvin is strong on the continuity of the New and Old Testament. So he really wants to emphasize the way in which certain New Testament sacraments are continuous with Old Testament rites. Eucharist, Passover, baptism, circumcision. Now, does circumcision make you a Jew? No, precisely. You shook your head, no, it doesn't. It's a sign that you're a Jew. It's a requirement the Jew must do. But if you don't baptize your, if you don't circumcise your male child, he's still Jew. He's still a Jew. In the eyes of Judaism, he's a Jew. Um, Calvin thus thinks, and, and note too, the promises in the Old Testament for Calvin are to you and your children. Now, if God is willing in the Old Testament to make a promise to you and your children, is God stingier in the New Testament? Shouldn't the promise be to you, Christians, and your children, whether or not they're baptized, just by being your children? So for Calvin, you've got a complicated continuity of the Old Testament, New Testament business at work in which baptism starts becoming a sign. But then you get a third kind of, of, of position, shall we say, which comes much more out of the sense of what is the nature of the Christian community? Is the Christian community made up of those who, as, as I talk about morally responsible persons, which means to some degree adults, have made a commitment to Christ? So we are, we are a community of those who have consciously committed themselves to Christ. But see, that's not going to work with infant baptism. If infant baptism means... You're going to have people who are there because that's the way they were born. They may be now committed, but they never remember converting, so to speak. They never remember, they may have important spiritual moments in their life, but read the life of St. Therese of Lisieux, for example. I mean, there isn't a moment, there's no moment in which, you know, she's away and comes back and comes to the church. It's not like reading St. Paul or Augustine. It's a different kind of Christian autobiography. So once you, you then have a rise out of pietism, the move toward a kind of revi more revivalist, where the, the sort of model of, of adult conversion becomes the model of what it, of, of what it is to be a Christian, um, and the community should be a community of the committed, inevitably, baptism starts falling into question. Uh, even when you keep baptism, it moves toward being really let's say you keep infant baptism, it really becomes only a sign. A good example of this is the movement Methodism, which begins in Anglicanism with a stronger doctrine of, of, of baptismal efficacy. This becomes an issue, baptismal regeneration. Does baptism itself regenerate? And that then falls out of Methodism as the movement goes on because of the emphasis upon conversion in revival-style preaching. So you've got a complicated range of positions here. Um, 
But in general, Catholics insist that sacraments are themselves efficacious. Now, there has to be a kind of reception. In the case of the infant, it's the community around them receiving, because, I mean, they sort of are more in the community than in themselves in a complex sense, I would argue. Um, there has to be reception, but, but by golly, it does something. If you're baptized, you're baptized. Um, and can't, you can't wash it off. Yes, no. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Um, how, I, I guess in, in response to that, how would you respond to John Calvin's uh, argument that you articulated? Because on the, I mean, on the face value, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable uh, way that he's looking at it. Because I hear, I think there's a discontinuity to the Old and New Testament. Okay. Uh, and that the inclusion to hear, whereas the community of Israel is constituted in a certain sense in the flesh of Abraham, his physical descendants of Abraham. Mm -hmm. um, the Christian community does here work in a different sense. Now, you need to be careful here about falling into certain kinds of, I would say, anti-Judaic tropes. They're fleshly, we're spiritual, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there is here a kind of difference. Um, now, again, I want to stress strongly, Paul, particularly in Romans 11, insists that the covenant of God with Israel never ends. God never revokes his gifts. But there is a difference here between the covenant with all humanity through Christ which comes through the sacrament of baptism, not simply through being, being through birth. So here to be a kind of ecclesiological question about the nature of the difference of the communities of Israel to which you are simply born into. There's a very good, a really interesting, he, he died maybe 10 years ago, Michael Wishagrod. I keep citing people with horrible spell names tonight. <laughs> W-Y-S-C-H. Oh, some vowel. G-R-O-D. Abraham's Children is the name of the book. Michael Wishagrod was a Jewish philosopher who knew a great deal of rabbinic stuff, but actually wrote a book on Heidegger and all that sort of business on modern philosophy. Um, he also wrote a book on, on just this issue of the corporate nature of Israel and the fleshly nature of Israel. And I wanted to stress that, that, you know, if you're born, if, you're, if your mother is Jewish, for you it is a sin to eat pork, period. You know, sorry. You may not have chosen it, but that's the reality. If your mother's not Jewish, mine isn't, you know, bring on the, we're going out to eat barbecue tonight. What the heck? <laughs> um, I like barbecue. I like bacon. Um, and it's no, it's no sin for me, but it is for that person over there, simply because they are a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham. That's just different kinds of communities. But then you're getting into complex, complex kinds of questions. Calvin's argument, though, is not stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, um, but note, it also had to do with the complex realities. I mean, I do think, I think the Reformation, one must not separate the Reformation from the kinds of social and political developments that were going on. It's no accident that the Reformation was used, I mean, People talk about confession, the process of confessionalization in the late 16th century, the way nations became often, you, you had to have one confessional stance. In England, you had to be an Anglican for a long period of time. This becomes, it solidifies you. The Catholics, they're the Spanish who want to overthrow us. They're bad guys. Religion becomes part of state formation and identity formation. Um, you certainly had a strong sense in Geneva, where Calvin was, the city-state of Geneva, of, of a tight unity of church and state. 
so that simply being born includes you in the group. I mean, note that if you've got the sort of community of the committed, that's not going to work as an established church in the same kind of way. I mean, there's fascinating studies of New England, which tried, New England Puritans tried to keep a complicated middle road. You'd be baptized as an infant, but until you could tell the story of your own conversion, you couldn't receive communion. Hmm. But let's say you get people now who are born, their parents are communicant Christians, they're baptized, but they never have the experience. Now, I'm 25, I've got a kid. I've never been eligible to receive communion, but I was baptized. Can my kid be baptized? This was called the problem of the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant were these people who, well, they're sort of halfway in the church. A very good book. An author with an easy name, Edmund Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, Visible Saints. It's an old book, uh, but it's on just this problem of, of the complex way the New England Puritans tried to create both a community of the committed that would take in everybody in the population in complicated ways. And they weren't willing to give up infant baptism because they thought it was scripture. But, but infant baptism didn't get you all the way in. It did not make you eligible to receive communion. You had to have a further experience. Thank you. Um, it's a, I mean, the New England here case is, is rather interesting. Okay, we're going to stop there. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I enjoyed this. I hope you found it interesting and profitable. Thank you. And it's good to be back in the <laughs>